Almighty God, as people so easily grumbled at the preaching of Jesus Christ, what expectation would I have that people would receive my preaching? Oh Lord, I am reminded even by this passage that has just been read that it is not my preaching that makes the difference, but rather it is the sovereign, saving initiative of God that makes the difference. And so I pray that you would use Uh, my word as I seek to proclaim your word. In fact, I pray that you would even use your word in spite of me to speak uh, to people and draw them to yourself. Draw us all to yourself that we may look upon the Lord Jesus Christ that we may feast upon Him by faith. And so, um, receive Him as the bread of life who has given His life for the world. We ask in His name. Amen. We've all had people who have tried to convince us. uh, I'm sorry, we've all had people who we have tried to convince of the truth of the Christian faith. I suspect uh, if your experience has been anything similar to mine, that uh, you've had some people that you've talked to about Christ who were very eager to hear. They just seemed ready to hear. And then there were other people. They were so confused about Christianity that you couldn't tell whether they were eager to hear what you were saying or not. I remember uh, traveling up a, um, a ski lift in Colorado or Utah somewhere um, and was sitting beside a young lady and um, began talking to her about uh, the Christian faith. And I mentioned something about the Trinity and she didn't even know what the Trinity was. And so by the time we got off the, the ski lift, I did not know if, we, if I had communicated anything helpful to her or not. Uh, probably most of the people that we witnessed to uh, have been basically indifferent to Christianity. Uh, they just don't want to be bothered. But a few people that you've witnessed too, if anything, if your experience is something like mine, a few people have been downright hostile to the claims of the Christian faith. So then the question is, how might you respond to someone who is hostile to the claims of Christianity? In our passage this morning, Jesus encountered people who were hostile to Him and to the claims He was making. You will remember that Jesus is speaking to part of the crowd that he had, uh, who had experienced the miracle that He had performed. 
the five barley loaves, the two fish, and how he, from those five barley loaves, the two fish had fed the 5,000. Well, part of the crowd that he's speaking to today uh, had been with him on the other side of the lake and had experienced this miracle. But he had crossed over the lake, and now he's in the town of Capernaum. In fact, uh, if you were to peek at verse 59, you'll see that Jesus is speaking in a synagogue. Verse 59 says, Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. In other words, when Jesus came across the sea, we don't know how long a period of time, maybe a few hours or something like that, but anyway, he ended up in the synagogue there in the town of Capernaum. And part of the people who had come around the lake uh, were there, but then there were other people. In fact, we'll be introduced uh, to this new element of people uh, in our passage this morning. And by the way, this, um, the ruins of this synagogue they have found in Capernaum, it was a, a quite a big synagogue, uh, it was destroyed at some point and rebuilt, but they found the ruins of this synagogue underneath um, the, the synagogue that had been built later. Anyway, who are these new people that are introduced to the crowd? Introduced in the, they are in the crowd. We're introduced to them in this discourse that Jesus um, has been having, or rather, this sermon that he is preaching. Verse 41, So the Jews grumbled about him. Earlier in John chapter 6, as he's been speaking to the crowds, as they have been referred to as the crowds or the people. But here, the first time in our uh, passage in John chapter 6, uh, we have... Uh, we are introduced to the Jews, and they are grumbling um, about him. Earlier in John chapter 6, the people were basically just unbelieving. Um, they wanted Jesus to do another miracle. They wanted Jesus to feed them again. But now, now that he's in the synagogue, the synagogue rulers and some of the prominent Jews within the synagogue are there. And as Jesus is preaching and teaching the people, they are out in the crowd and they are stirring the people up. And so they began grumbling against Jesus. They didn't like that Jesus had said, I am the bread who came down from heaven. So they stir up the people against Jesus. Uh, look at verse 42. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? And so they're calling into question the identity of Jesus. They're calling into question the claims that Jesus is making. Jesus said, I am the bread who came down from heaven. How could he come down from heaven? We know where he came from. We know his parents. Uh, so, they are um, stirring up the people. How would you? How would you have responded to the grumbling of the Jews if you were Jesus? If you were out, if you were up in front of the synagogue, and Jesus, when he 
taught in the synagogue, he would actually sit down rather than stand up. So if you were sitting down speaking to the people and you knew that they were grumbling against you, they were hostile to your claims, how would you respond? Uh, what would you have said in the face of their hostility? I know what I would have done. I would have performed another miracle. I would have reasoned with them by saying, a mere human being could not do what I just did. You know, maybe make the roof of the synagogue disappear. Or, or make the, the Jews who are grumbling to be raised up in the air so that they're floating around in the air. I don't know, I would have done something like that to try and rationally prove to them that no mere human being is speaking to them. That... Uh, no person born in a normal way by normal parents could do this. In other words, don't you understand, I would be saying, I came down from heaven. And then I would have expected the argument to be over. Because once I did the miracle, logically speaking, rationally speaking, they would understand that I was no mere human being. But that's not what Jesus did. He didn't perform another miracle. Uh, everybody in the synagogue was already there to listen to him because they knew that he had performed miracles. Jesus knew that the heart of their problem was not an intellectual problem. Even though they were saying rationally it doesn't fit, we see his, we know his parents, therefore he cannot have come down from heaven. That was their rational argument. But really, it wasn't an intellectual argument at all. It wasn't an intellectual problem, let me say. Jesus knew that their problem was not lack of rational proof. He knew that the heart of their problem was the problem of their heart. He knew that Titus 1.15, even though Titus 1.15 technically had not been written yet, um, Paul had not written it, but he knew that the truth spoken in Titus 1.15 was true of them, which says, To the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. He also knew the truth of Ephesians 4.18 was true of them that it was an accurate description of them, which says, Unbelievers are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. And we can go on and on listing verses. The problem that the Jews were having with Jesus was not an intellectual uh, problem. It was not an intellectual issue. It was a heart issue. Their hearts were hard against God. So Jesus did not take aim at changing their minds as a first priority. He knew that their minds would follow their hearts. He knew that in their hearts they, they hated God, so their minds would never submit to Him unless their hearts were first changed. 
If you look closely at biblical preaching throughout the Bible, you'll see this same pattern. The Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles, they all aimed at the heart as their priority. Even when they provided miracles as a demonstration of their authority, they never ever waited for people to agree in their minds before they called their listeners to repentance and faith. They knew that the heart of the problem is always the problem of the heart. So this is an important issue for you if you are speaking to people who are hostile to the Christian faith. This is, this is um, important for you if you're speaking to anyone whom you want to persuade uh, to the truth of Christianity. Where are you aiming your message? Are you aiming it here? Or are you aiming it here? I want to give you a couple of examples of this kind of preaching from the Scriptures. Uh, but I'm not going to belabor the point. In Acts chapter 2, Peter was preaching on the day of Pentecost. You all know the, 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 the first Christian sermon. Peter was preaching there in Acts chapter 2. And he summarized his sermon in verse 36. And here's what he said as a, uh, as a uh, summation of his sermon. He said, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him, talking about Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Can you feel the weight of what Peter just said to the people? He laid the death of Jesus at their feet. You crucified the Lord and the Messiah. You rejected the one God sent. You rejected His Lordship. And so He's aiming at their hearts. He's seeking to prick their hearts. And I listen to the people's response in the very next verse. In verse 37, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what must we do? This sermon was aimed at their hearts and it found its mark. Or consider Stephen's preaching before the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 7. Listen to how he concludes his sermon. He says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Again, his preaching is aimed at the heart. But there was a quite a different result. And here's the result of his preaching. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, talking about Stephen, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears and they rushed together at him. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. Preaching that is aimed at the heart always gets a response. 
I remember one of my uh, professors saying, if you preach to the heart the everlasting gospel, you'll either get conversions or you'll get stoned. So instead of performing a miracle, Jesus spoke to them about the sovereign initiative of God. Instead of trying to reason with them, Jesus told them that they have a tremendous problem that they could not solve. They had a problem that only God could solve. Look at verses 44 through 46. Jesus said, well, first of all, let's go back to verse 43. Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. And then verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. See, their problem was that they would not and could not come to God unless God first took the initiative to draw them to Himself. This is not just a little bit of initiative or, or, or a little bit of influence or a little bit of wooing on God's part. Rather, Jesus is saying that it is impossible for them to come to God unless God has first enabled them. Look at verse 65. In verse 65, uh, Jesus is speaking afterwards to His disciples and He, he is he's very keen to make sure that His disciples understand exactly what He was saying earlier to the larger crowds. And so he says in verse 65, This is why I told you no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. And so this is not just a little bit of influence on God's part. He's saying they cannot come unless the Father has granted it to them. Or if you have the New International Version, unless the Father has enabled them. In verse 44, the word that Jesus uses for draw, um, in terms of drawing a person to himself, or drawing a person to Jesus, is the same word for that is used for a bucket that is being drawn out of a well. Uh, in other words, it's just as impossible for a person to come to God on their own initiative as it is for a bucket to climb out of a well without someone pulling it up. And so Jesus is saying to the crowds, you might as well stop your grumbling because you won't come to Me, nor will you believe in Me, unless God draws you to Myself. Does that sound strange? What about the people's personal responsibility? If they are required to exercise trust in Christ, then shouldn't they have the ability to exercise trust? Here's the problem. It's the same problem I've already mentioned several times in the sermon before. Uh, this, already this morning. The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. They are so willingly rebellious against God that they will not come to Him. They are so willingly rebellious against God that they cannot come to Him. Christ is so distasteful to them 
that they will not receive Him as the bread of life, even though He is holding Himself out before them. The problem is, they would never come to Christ unless God draws them. This remains true for fallen humanity today. But there's also another side to this coin, a gracious side to this coin. If you do trust in Christ, you trust in Him because God has drawn you to Himself. He gave you faith to trust Him. He changed your heart. You believe Him with your intellect because God has grabbed hold of your heart. Oh, and and don't miss what Jesus says at the end of verse 44. Look at verse 44, this last phrase. Those who have been drawn to the Father, I mean drawn to Jesus by the Father, look what He says. He says, And I will raise Him up on the last day. In other words, Jesus does not lose grip on anyone that the Father has given to Him. He said the same thing in verse 39. Uh, we saw it last week. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. If you belong to Jesus, you will not slip through His fingers. And He will raise you up at the last day. Why would Jesus speak so bluntly to people he has no, um, who have uh, no control? He's um, getting tongue-tied. Why would Jesus speak so bluntly to these people about something that they have no control over? In other words, if they can't come to God unless God draws them, then why would he mention it? I believe the reason he did this was to humble them. I've told you the story before of how I had the privilege of going out with uh, Dr. D. James Kennedy to do evangelism. And uh, we went out to this... um, uh, Members in his church uh, went to their home and they had a son who was uh, finishing up his Ph.D. in philosophy and he turned his back on, on Christianity. And so Dr. Kennedy sat down and began talking with him and went through the gospel. And uh, this young man had every objection in the world. And when Dr. Kennedy would answer his objections, he would change objections and would go to something else and then to something else and then to something else. The young man apparently had not looked at uh, all those little letters on the end of Dr. Kennedy's name, if you've ever, if you remember those. Dr. Kennedy, Ph.D., and there would be like 26 letters, the whole alphabet after his name because he had so many different degrees. Uh, in fact, at one point, the, uh, the young man said to Dr. Kennedy, um, you can't tell me that the Bible is true. We don't even know what language the Bible is originally written in. Dr. Kennedy, you may not believe me, but I was there. He quoted John 1, 1 through 14 from memory in Greek and then said to the young man, if we don't know what language the Bible is originally written in, what is that? Well, that objection was blunted. Dr. Kennedy blunted that objection. And so the young man went to another objection because the part of the problem was not what was going on here. It was his attitude toward God here. 
Finally, at the end of the evening, Dr. Kennedy said to the young man, the only reason you have not given your, your life to God, the only reason you're not trusting Him is because God has not drawn you to Himself. He said, and young man, He may never draw you to Himself. And Dr. Kennedy said to him, I would recommend that you cry out to God for mercy right now. And the young man's demeanor just melted. He was humbled. He still would not call out to God. But you could tell that suddenly he realized he was not in control. Suddenly he realized God was in control. And he felt very helpless. And that's what Jesus is doing here for these, for the crowd that He's speaking to. He's humbling them. Stop your grumbling. You won't come to God unless God first draws you to, uh, to Myself. God is the one who makes the difference. And Jesus just wasn't trying to win an argument. Jesus was going after their souls. There's an old Puritan uh, poem called The Hound of Heaven, and Jesus is the Hound of Heaven. And here Jesus is the Hound of Heaven, and He is he is seeking out these people's souls. He's not just trying to win an argument. The proof of this is verse 47. Jesus says to these people, these people who are grumbling against Him, these people who are hostile to, to the claims that He is making, He says to them, with one of these truly, truly, or amen, amen type statements. He says, verse 47, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. What Jesus does is He points them to the free offer of the Gospel. And He says, believe. And when you are speaking with someone who is hostile to the gospel, don't take it personally and try and win the argument. Point them to the free offer of the gospel. You don't know what God is going to do in their hearts. God knows. And He says, Truly, truly, whoever believes has eternal life. There's no one beyond God's ability to draw them to Himself. When I was in high school, um, well, let me back up a little bit. I became a Christian my first year in college, and I played uh, high school football. And the motto for our football team was, We are family. Uh, we were a very close-knit uh, bunch. We had won a state championship together. And so after I graduated from high school, went on to college, became a Christian, I began praying for my teammates. And I would start, I would go down the offensive line because I was the center on the football team. And would go down through, and then on, uh, and then through the rest of the offense, then I would go down the defensive line because I was also a defensive end. And then the rest of the team. And I would get to one of our linebackers, Trip. I won't say his name because of the uh, proliferation of... Uh, of social media these days. But that young man, he was the meanest individual I have ever in my life met. I remember tackling him on the football field and he was on my team because he was going after the referee. He came into class one time just goofing off. 
hit me so hard, knocked me out of my chair. I mean, literally, I came up off the ground. Thankfully, um, there were a number of other football players sitting around us that kind of that kept us from from uh, going at it because I was I was too prideful to stay on the ground. But he would have killed me. <laughs> um, Anyway, I would I would be praying for my for my teammates, and I would come to him, and I would say, "You can't pray for everybody." <laughs> and I would skip him because I just couldn't imagine that he would come to Christ. Well, you know what happened? I I came home from break, and I'm at the gas station, Palmetto, Georgia, small little two gas station town, um, and. Uh, I almost keep saying his name. Um, anyway, he got out of the car. He said, I heard you became a Christian. I'm thinking, oh no, what's coming? And he said, I became a Christian too. And I thought, where is the grace of God? <laughs> Lastly, Christ didn't just point to the free offer of the gospel. He pointed to himself as the bread of life. Look at verses 48 through 51. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven. And he's already said, I'm the bread who came down from heaven. So it's clear to everybody what he's saying. So, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. We'll talk about that little phrase about is my, my flesh next week uh, as we have communion um, uh, scheduled for next week. But um, I want to remind you as you are having conversations with unbelievers, whether they are indifferent, whether they are eager, or whether they are hostile to the claims of Christianity, the most important thing that you can do is point them to Jesus Christ. I remember being on the airplane um, one time. And my dad worked for Delta, and so I would just jump on the plane, go fly to Colorado, ski for the day, turn around, and come back at the end of the day. And so I would get to talk to people on the, on the plane a lot. And uh, I was talking to this one person, and she seemed uh, particularly engaged about um, God. And we talked about the existence of God. We talked about a Christian philosophy of life. And it was very engaging. And we didn't get really anywhere. And I began pondering that conversation. And I realized I talked a lot about Christianity and the existence of God. And I didn't tell her about the Gospel. I didn't tell her about the cross of Christ. I didn't point her to Jesus Christ. And I was so ashamed. The heart of the Gospel is Jesus Christ. He is the bread of life who gave His flesh for the life of the world. He was the one who came and took on flesh in order that He might go to that awful cross and become sin for sinners and hang there and suffer the wrath of God in our place as our substitute. 
He is the bread of life. He is the Savior. He is the Redeemer. He is the Messiah. Point to Him. If you're not getting anywhere with someone, I would just take the shortcut to Jesus. In conclusion, I'm reminded of uh, Charles Spurgeon, and some of you probably heard this story before. And someone said to uh, Charles Spurgeon, how do you defend the claims of Christianity and defend the truthfulness of the Bible? He said, well, if I were asked to defend a lion, I would say, how silly. Rather, I would just let the lion out and let it defend itself. Point people to the Lord Jesus Christ. Point people to His love. Point people to what He has done for them in His death and in His resurrection and how He uh, watches over His own, cares for us, and will, as it says in verse 44, raise us, us up on the last day. Point to Him. And Christ can cut through the hardest of hearts. He can melt the stoniest of hearts. He can bring any heart to Himself. Let's pray. Father, we look to You now because You are the one who is at work. You are the one who uses Your Word by the power of Your Spirit. Lord, as we have looked to Jesus Christ, increase our faith. As we have heard His Word, increase our faith. Lord, for any here who do not know You, draw them to Him, to, to Jesus Christ by the power of Your Spirit. I ask this in His name. Amen.